Our sermon this morning uh, is from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find Mark chapter 1 on page 785. But it's also in the bulletin. It's also up here on the, on the screen. So grab a copy of the text in some way and have it uh, in front of you. This is the second week of Advent. So last week we heard from Psalm 36 and considered um, how it was uh, relevant to the Advent season. We're going to spend the rest of Advent working through the first 12, 13 verses of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Advent uh, comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming or arrival. And so the Advent season is simply that. It's, it's a season where we, as the people of God, acknowledge the coming of and the arrival of uh, God here with us. And so it's marked by a lot of things we're familiar with, uh, Christmas tree, decorations, all of those, those kinds of things that we associate with the Christmas season. But the particular uh, aspect that, that throughout the church uh, the church has traditionally, throughout church history, the church has traditionally recognized or, or emphasized during Advent is the idea of, of waiting. Waiting and, and preparing, right? So, so uh, we spend these weeks uh, waiting and, and longing and preparing our hearts for the moment when we can celebrate the coming of, of Christ. Um, and, and we spend that time preparing, right? Preparing our hearts for... Uh, remembering and, and celebrating how Jesus came, how Jesus arrived, how Jesus' advent, how he, he came and arrived here uh, among us. And so Advent, special season of waiting and preparing. And the, the text that we traditionally associate with Advent um, is not Mark. So, so this is going to be a little bit, a little bit atypical this, this season. The texts that we typically associate with Advent are usually Luke and, and Matthew. Luke is the most kind of uh, traditional Advent texts to consider. They're where we see the, you know, that's, that's the one that has the most uh, content about prior to Jesus' birth. Mary's pregnancy, uh, John the Baptist, uh, Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist, and uh, the song that we just sang, Mary's Magnificat. These are all things from uh, the Gospel of Luke. It's also where we see the classic nativity scene with the the manger and the shepherds and the angels, all of that is the gospel of Luke. It's like your classic bread and butter, you know, uh, you know, anchor text for Advent. And then kind of a supplemental one is, is Matthew. We see some different uh, kind of complementary things in the gospel of Matthew. We see uh, the visit of the three magi from the east. We see um, their flight from Herod down uh, to Egypt so that Jesus isn't, isn't killed because Herod is looking to, to kill him. So Matthew and Luke respectively have a lot of content about the Christmas season that we usually read and celebrate during the Advent season. Uh, Mark and John, not so much. They're, they're both a little weird. Mark just jumps right in with, the, with grown-up Jesus, uh, getting ready to start his grown-up ministry. Uh, and John is just his own thing. He uh, starts almost like the book of Genesis, right? In the beginning uh, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and, and um, you know, the, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so, so there's, there's uh, elements of the incarnation kind of baked into John chapter 1, but it's kind of uh, different. It's almost a little more philosophical than, than, than the rest of the three Gospels. So Mark and John, fairly atypical to, to, to read and consider and to hear from during Advent, but uh, I think maybe to our, you know, I think that's, I think they shouldn't be. I think that, that there's a lot that we can learn and, and read and consider about waiting and about preparing, which are those Advent themes. We can read a lot about waiting and preparing in the Gospel of Mark, even though Jesus is a grown-up uh, in, in the first few verses. And same thing from the Gospel of, of John. And so uh, we'll probably study the Gospel of John at some point, John 1, in, in, in an Advent season in the years to come. But uh, this year, we wanted to take a few Sundays and look at Mark 1. And so we're going to look specifically this morning at the person and the ministry of John the Baptist. Next week, we'll look at Jesus' baptism. And then the week after that, we'll look at Jesus' temptation uh, in, the, in the wilderness. But all three of them, like I said, have to do with Jesus preparing for his earthly ministry. His, you know, the, the people 
are waiting for the arrival of the Messiah, and, the, and Jesus is going through preparation for his earthly ministry. So they're Advent themes. He's not a baby. There's no manger, but they're Advent themes none the, nonetheless. And so I'm going to read through uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to spend some time thinking together uh, about the person and the ministry of John the Baptist. It reads, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. And John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And now John was clothed with camel's hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, your inspired, infallible, inerrant, perfect, authoritative, sufficient word for us. We're so grateful for it. We're grateful that we get to read your Bible and consider what you have to say to us. We're grateful that we can do so uh, publicly in a a community where we don't fear reprisal or persecution. God, it is a great privilege to have a Bible. It's a great privilege to listen to your word, and it's a great privilege to be able to do so together as a church family. And so we thank you, and we um, are grateful, and we pray that you would bless our time this morning as we do. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay. Verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I want to take just a minute and consider, this is kind of the, you know, the only verse, as it were, in the gospel of Mark that is kind of parenthetical and kind of his specific narrative, his kind of uh, editorial thoughts on the, the content that he is is presenting. And this is kind of him establishing and defining and saying what his letter is, and it's worth just pausing and considering. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He calls his book a... No other gospel writer calls their book a gospel, at least not in the introductory, you know, the, none, of them, none of them say, this is the, my gospel, this is the gospel. That's Mark. He kind of does that uh, only. All the books are gospels, uh, but Mark is the only one that specifically verbalizes it. But it's interesting, and it kind of raises a question about what, what a gospel is. What is a gospel? What is the gospel? And, and um, you know, what, why, why does Mark specifically choose that word to define and say what his gospel, what his book, what his letter, as it really was, um, is? So, uh, the word gospel is from the, well, it's, it, the Greek word for gospel is called euangelion. Uh, it's where we get our word evangelism. It's where we get our word evangelistic, ev- evangelical. These are all kind of derivatives from euangelion, which means uh, gospel. Literally, it means good news. Okay, euangelion, the word you, it's, it's de- euangelion is two words, you, which is good, and then angelos, or angelon, which is uh, message or, or messenger. In fact, that's where we get the word angel, is from angelos. And so an angel is a messenger from God, someone who, who declares a message from God. And so a euangelion is good news or a good message that is delivered or brought by a messenger. That's what the word gospel literally means. Now, the word gospel the, uh, and the word euangelion uh, had, it had kind of linguistic use in the Roman Empire apart from and before the advent of, of, of Jesus. It was a political term. It was, a, it was almost, um, almost an empire propaganda term, as, as, as it were. So, so the Roman Empire uh, is this big, huge, sprawling, 
military superpower. It's always expanding. It's always conquering. The, Ro- the Roman Empire's kind of strategy was a uh, huge, big, strong empire, go conquer a new people, and then tell them you're now part of Rome whether you like it or not. And then uh, tax them heavily, oppressively, and then use the money that you tax from them to build into, pour into, and fortify your army, make it bigger and stronger so that you could then go and conquer more people and tax them and use that. You're paying these oppressive taxes to your occupier, your oppressor, that they can then use to oppress you more effectively. That was Rome's strategy. That was their expansion and kind of franchise strategy. And it worked. I mean, it like Rome at its height went all the way from England and Britain and Spain all the way over to almost to India. I mean, just a huge sprawling empire. Now, that was Rome. That was kind of their strategy. That was what it looked like. Now, there was no telephone. There was no fax. There was no email. So, for word to get from one part of the empire to another had to be sent via messenger. Um, and, and uh, the, you know, and often these, mes- these messengers are sent with messages from, from you know, either, either from the field, right? If they, if they conquer a new area, a new region, they would send a messenger back to Rome, back to Caesar, and say, take him the message from the field of good news. Take him the message that says, we conquered another area. We have more, he can expect more income in the coming months and years. We're that much more bigger, that much more powerful. We have that many more subjects. And then Caesar would send messengers out to the masses and say, we won again. I won again. I'm that much bigger. I'm that much stronger. Hail Caesar, essentially. And he would send messengers out. And these were, these messengers were, were called, I mean, were literally called Roman evangelists that were going and taking good news from one part of the empire to another. In fact, um, so uh, who, who here has run, who here's run a marathon? Hands up if you've run a marathon ever. Fred's run a marathon. Way to go. Catherine has run a marathon. That's awesome. Who, what's the farthest that anyone, has anyone run a half marathon? Let's see hands for half marathon. 13 miles. Good work. So who knows where the word marathon comes from? Kids, I'm, I'm ask, asking you guys too. I want to make this fun for you since we don't have any children's church. Who knows where the word marathon comes from? Okay, the word marathon, uh, the reason why we call a 26-mile run a marathon is because there was a battle uh, in between Greece and Persia long ago. There was a guy, I wrote his name down, uh, Philippides. So uh, Greece wins this battle against, or at least this is, legend has it, that Greece wins this battle against Persia. And then the people, the, Greek, the, the soldiers, of, the Greek soldiers see the Persian ships starting to sail away. And they're like, and this is again, this is kind of how, uh, how, how different it was. They were afraid that the Persian ships were going to sail to Athens, and that they were going, which is the capital of Greece at the time, and that they were going to show up and be like, hey, we won the battle. Like, they had lost, and Greece had won, but they were afraid Persia was going to get there and say, we won the battle, so you need to surrender to us. We are the, we are the, the victors. And the, Greece, the Greek soldiers were like, we can't let that happen. So they send this guy, and they say, uh, Athens is 26 miles away. Run. Just go run 26 miles to Athens and tell them that we won the battle. Make sure that the people in our capital city know that we won the battle, and so they know that we are victors. And so this guy runs 26 miles without stopping, and he, like, you know, throws all of his supplies. I mean, he literally shows up naked and, and says, and he shows up and kind of, there's a, you can Google it, there's pictures. He shows up and he's saying, we won, we are victorious, we won the battle, right? This was a Greek evangelist bringing his gospel, his good news to the, the, the capital city of Athens saying, we won. Right? The, the, the word gospel means good news. It's brought by an evangelist who is a bringer of good news. And so Mark is a, appropriating that. He's saying that sa- the, the same messenger that brings a, good, a message of good news to the people, I'm that. And this book is that. Right? Just like that guy would run and say, we won the battle. Just like Caesar would send someone out and say, good news, I'm, all the, I'm that much stronger. We're that much more powerful, that much more stable as an empire. Mark is saying, this book is my gospel. It's me declaring the good news about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. The word gospel is used a lot today. 
particularly in the circles I run in, right? I'm a pastor, so I read things written to and for and by pastors. If you Google the word gospel uh, on Amazon, this is, you know, you'll see gospel-centered life, gospel-centered community, gospel-centered family, gospel-centered ministry, gospel-centered youth ministry, gospel-centered marriage, gospel-centered counseling, gospel-centered funerals, right? A bajillion books. I, I ran out of time writing down all the names of all of these books, many of which are good, right? Not, like, a lot of these, I think, are probably some of the better resources that, that you could find on these, these topics, but the word gospel is used a lot. A lot of people have their issue that they care a lot about, social issue, political issue, and they'll say, it's a, it's a gospel issue. May or may not be, it may or may not be integral to the gospel message, but you'll hear that a lot. This is a gospel issue, which means, basically it just means this is really important. Um, have you heard the phrase, uh, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words? Which essentially just means be a good person, be kind, show the love of Christ to others. And if you do that, then you are effectively preaching the, the gospel. The word gospel is used a lot today, and it's not always used correctly, but the word gospel literally means good news about who Jesus is and what he has done to save us from our sins. It's a message. It's not a thing that we do. It's not a thing that we embody. It's not a thing that we represent. It's a message that we proclaim. It's good news about Jesus's active obedience, fulfilling the law of God in our place. It's good news about Jesus' atonement, his death for sin to satisfy the wrath of God and pay the penalty that we owned. It's, it's, it's good news about Jesus' resurrection from the dead and the victory that he secured over Satan and sin and how he imparts new life to his people who trust in him, who turn from their sin and trust in him. Right? The, the, the gospel is a message of good news that we hear and believe and proclaim. So Mark says, my letter, my book that I'm writing to you is a gospel. It's my good news that I'm sharing with you. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son, the Son of God. Now, the word Christ, so contrary to popular opinion, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Right? Like, if you were in the, you wouldn't look up the phone book in the first century and go to C for Christ, and there's Jesus, and you know, uh, Christ is not a, a name; it's a it's a title. Uh, it comes from the Greek word Christos. And the Greek word Christos, its Hebrew counterpart is Mashiach or, or Messiah. So the word Christ is a title that basically me, means Messiah, and and Messiah, the the definition, what the the idea of the 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 Jewish Messiah was that there were... The Old Testament is chock full of all kinds of prophecies and promises and allusions and foreshadowings, all pointing forward to a, a guy, right? I mean, ever since, ever since the, the Garden of Eden, God is constantly promising his people, I'm going to save you, I'm going to reconcile you to myself, I'm going to defeat uh, your enemies, I'm going to forgive your sin, I'm going to send a savior to you, who's going to do battle with evil and, and accomplish your salvation. He'll be the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king. He'll end all of your suffering, your pain, your slavery, your oppression. I'm going to put an end to all that, and I'm going to save you, and I'm going to restore you back to life as it was intended to be lived, like we saw in the Garden of Eden. Lots and lots of promises like that all throughout the Old Testament. And the Messiah was the person that was going to do all of that. It was the person, he was the embodiment of all of those promises. He was the guy who was going to come and accomplish all of those, those promises, defeat the enemies of God, rule over the people of God in righteousness and justice. The coming king, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, right? Those are all synonyms. The anointed one, the coming king, who's going to fulfill all of those all of those promises. So when Mark says uh, this, this letter is a gospel, this book is a gospel, he's saying it's good news about Jesus. When he calls Jesus the Christ, he's saying that Jesus was the fulfillment of every promise and every prophecy that we see in the Old Testament. He is the anointed one of God who's coming to reign over the people of God. Jesus is also, though, not just the Christ, but he's also the Son of God. 
which is also, just like Christ, just like the Messiah, is, is pregnant with, with, with meaning, right? The, uh, it means that Jesus is the, um, well, first and foremost, it means that Jesus is the fulfillment of and the, the true and better uh, Adam. Adam was called the Son of God. When, when, uh, when you look at the, the genealogy in Luke chapter 3, it refers to Adam as the Son of God. So, so Adam is the first Son of God that was given specific tasks by God his Father, and he ultimately failed uh, to, to, to you know, succeed in those tasks. Later, Israel was called the firstborn Son of God in Exodus chapter, um, Exodus chapter 4. Israel is called God's firstborn Son. So, so Adam is God's first Son. Uh, is given a task, he fails. Israel is God's uh, son. It's kind of the, the, you know, the, the next outworking of Adam, and they fail. Where Adam failed, Israel also fails. And so when, when Mark calls Jesus the son of God, he's saying that Jesus is the true and better Adam, the true son of God. He's the true and better Israel, the true son of God. He's also saying that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is he's divine. He is fully, uh, you know, fully possessing of qualities and attributes of divinity. In fact, when um, in John chapter 5, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of God. He refers to God as his own Father. And everyone gets real mad and they all want to kill him. And they say, why are you trying to, to kill Jesus? And they say, you, we want to kill Jesus because he called God his father. And when you say that God is your father, and when you say that you are the son of God, you are effectively saying that you are God. You're saying that you're equal with God. You're saying that you're one with God. You're saying that you are God, and that's why we want to kill you. It's for, for blasphemy. So when Mark says Jesus is the son of God, he's also saying Jesus is God. Jesus is fully divine. He is he is God's son, and he is fully possessing of all of the qualities and attributes of God himself. So, the word gospel means a lot. The word Christ means a lot. The word son of God. I mean, the, word, the name Jesus uh, even has, has plenty of meaning that we should consider together. The word, the word Jesus uh, comes from the, the Hebrew name Yeshua, a variant of, of Joshua, which means, um, which, which comes literally from Jehovah, God, and Yasha saves. And so the name Yeshua or, or Jesus means God saves or God is my salvation or salvation that has come from God. It kind of has this connotation of, you know, I don't save myself. Mankind does not manufacture his own salvation right? Uh, true salvation comes from God. Salvation is of the Lord. God is the one who saves. The name Jesus means all of that. All of that is kind of bound up in the, the name Jesus. And so gospel, good news, Jesus, God saves, Christ, uh, anointed one, coming king, son of God, fully divine. There's a lot of theology packed into just these first uh, few words of the first verse of uh, the, the book of Mark. I mean, G Mark has essentially said in just, in, in, you know, these few short words, I'm going to tell you the good news about the person and work of Jesus, the fully divine Son of God, the Messiah who has come from heaven to fulfill all of the promises of the Old Testament and to reign over God's people in perfect justice and righteousness and to save them from their from their sin. That's what that's what my that's what my book is about. That's what the next sixteen chapters are all going to be uh, about. So quite the introduction, and then he immediately jumps to John the Baptist, and specifically prophecies about John the Baptist from the books of Malachi and Isaiah. It says, as it is written in the prophet or in Isaiah the prophet, "Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way." The voice of one crying in the wilderness, "Prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight." So, he says it's from Isaiah the prophet, but really, like I said, it's from uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. But a lot of times, writers in the New Testament will do that. They'll kind of use uh, names like Isaiah uh, as kind of shorthand. You know, Isaiah was the more... Pro if you've got Isaiah in one hand and Malachi in the other, Isaiah is the more prominent of those two prophets. And so, just as a shorthand, they say, this is 
Uh, you, you can see this in the book of in the book of Isaiah, in the prophet Isaiah. But um, both of those two quote, like uh, he Mark intentionally strings them together, and basically saying that these two prophecies from Malachi three and Isaiah forty tell the story of who Jesus is and who John the Baptist uh, is. And so we'll we'll take them both in in order. I'm just going to read a little bit from the context of Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40 to kind of get a picture of what Mark is trying to communicate. Malachi, the book of Malachi is basically a rebuke to Israel for their sin against God. It's a rebuke for, right, they're not they're, they're not uh, offering, their, their offerings are polluted because their hearts are not in them. They're not tithing, they're not giving, they're not being faithful, they're not being, they're not loving their, their neighbor, right? There's a lot of rebuking um, for the people of God, for their having abandoned the, the covenant. And, and Malachi is a big kind of rebuke of them. And in Malachi chapter 3, uh, uh, he's specific to say that God's judgment is going to come against them because of their sin. He says, uh, the Lord who you seek is going to suddenly come into his temple, and, and who can endure that day of his coming? Who can stand when the Lord appears? The Lord is like a refiner's fire, right? He will draw near in, in judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and adulterers and, and those who swear falsely and those who oppress the hired worker in his wages and the widow and the fatherless and the, those who, who uh, thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So Malachi 1 and 2, you are guilty for sinning against God. Malachi 3, God is going to come back to judge you for your sin against God. But Malachi 3, 1 is where it says, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. So basically, just before God comes back and comes into his temple to bring judgment against the people for their sin, just prior to that, there's going to be another guy, not God coming into the temple, but another one who's going to come and prepare the way before him. So what we see from Malachi is that there's a forerunner who's going to prepare the way for the Messiah, and the main job of the Messiah is to bring judgment against sin. It's kind of scary, even kind of depressing a little bit. But when we kind of hold that up next to Isaiah chapter 40, we see the flip side of the coin. Isaiah 40, if Malachi is all about judgment for sin, Mal or Isaiah 40 is all about compassion and mercy and restoration. Right? The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are a lot about, they're similar to Malachi, they're a lot about judgment. But starting in chapter 40, there's a break, there's a shift, and it starts to speak a lot about renewal and restoration. We see language like, Comfort will come to my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her welfare, that her warfare has ended. Her iniquity has been pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So Isaiah 40 is not like Malachi that says judgment is coming. Isaiah 40 says mercy is coming. Restoration is coming. Renewal, covenant renewal is coming. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain will be made low. The uneven ground will become level. The rough places will become a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be re re revealed and all flesh shall see it together. And then when God comes, the, the, the forerunner comes and prepares. And then when God arrives, remember Malachi says when God arrives, he's going to come into his temple. He's going to bring judgment and punishment for sin. Isaiah 40 says, when God arrives after the forerunner, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs into his arms and carry them gently in his bosom. He will lead them. Lift up your eyes on high and see your creator. He brings his people out. He calls them by name, by the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power. There is not one who is missing. He will restore their strength and give power to the faint. So it's it's the two mark is pulling from both of these together he doesn't seem at all like he doesn't feel like he's making a contradiction here he says he says john the baptist is the messenger who will prepare the way for malachi 3 which means jesus is going to crush and destroy his enemies and he's going to judge sin and john the baptist is the forerunner from isaiah 40 which means that jesus is going to be a soft kind, compassionate, gentle Savior who, who draws near to the brokenhearted and cares for them and saves them. 
They're both true. Isaiah 40, the mercy of Christ, the gentle and lowly Christ who, who can hold a bruised reed in his hand and will not break it. That's true. And Malachi 3, right? The warrior Christ who's going to judge sin and no one can stand against him. He will crush anyone who rebels against him is also true. And Mark is pulling from both of those themes here in verses 2 through 3. They're not two different guys. They're one guy. Judgment against sin, mercy for sinners. Punishment for sin, grace for sinners. All of that's wrapped up in one person. All of it's wrapped up in Jesus. And and Jesus will be preceded. His way will be prepared by a forerunner. Which up until now, we don't know his name, but we learn it in verse 4. So let's flip to the next. Next slide says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John is Jesus' cousin, John has one sermon. John has... So, baseball. If you're a, if you're a baseball fan, uh, a lot of closers... So, a, a lot of your best pitchers that have the, the most... Like, they can, they can just chew up innings. They'll they be your starters, right? They come out, and their job is to just... They, they have to face every batter in the lineup two, three times... And, and they need to have a lot of different pitches. They need to vary it up. They need to throw a change up here. They need to throw a fastball there, right? So those are your starters. Your bullpen guys try to get you from, once the, uh, once the starter's arm is tired, he comes out, your bullpen guys try to get you from there to the ninth inning. And then the ninth inning, that's where you see the closer. And the closer, his job is just come in and get three outs max, maybe one or two, right? Depending on where, where you are in, in, the, in the game. And he doesn't need to worry about facing all of the batters. He ideally, he's only going to face three batters. And each batter, their, their at-bat against him is going to be the first time they've ever seen him. And so theoretically, they might, get three, they might be struck out before they ever even get the feel of who this pitcher is and what I can expect when, when I'm trying to, to bat against him. And as a consequence, most closers... Again, they throw one pitch. And they, these guys might not have the endurance to go six, seven, eight innings, but they have really strong arms. These are the guys that throw heat. They throw 100 miles an hour or faster. And the goal is just like, the, the whole thing with a closer is you could come up to the mound and just say to the batter, I'm going to throw a fastball right here. And they still won't be able to hit it because they're exhausted from a long afternoon of baseball and you're throwing just, just as fast as you can right and just blows by them. They don't even see it. John the Baptist was a closer, right? He was, John the Baptist had one pitch. He didn't have a lot of nuance. One pitch, right? You've sinned against God. Repent of your sin. Escape the judgment of God, the coming wrath of God. You need to be forgiven by God. And in order to be forgiven, you need to repent. That was what he said every day, all day. And when you came to John, you knew what you were going to hear. And he told you that one thing that you were were going to hear. The word repentance... We're doing, a lot of, we're doing a lot of original language this, this morning. My, my seminary professors would be proud. But the word repentance, the word repent comes from the Greek word metanoia, which is two words. Uh, meta means behind you, and noeo means what you think. And so, so the word metanoia essentially means to, to think differently, to, to change the way that you're thinking, but specifically to change it Stop thinking about what's in front of you and start thinking about what's behind you. So it implies a, just a 180 degree turn, change of direction. Repentance means to turn the other way and start thinking, doing, going the way that you were not going. Like, do the opposite of what you were doing. Think the opposite of what you were thinking. Go the opposite of the direction that you were previously going. That's, that's repentance, right? Your, your, your GPS is telling you to go this way and there's something in your rearview mirror. Reverse those. Go where, where what was... What was previously in the rear view will now be in front of you. What was previously in front of you will now be in the the rear view. That's repentance, and that's what John was preaching. You've sinned against God. You need to be forgiven by God. You need to repent and turn from your sin so that God will forgive you. And people responded. Verse 5. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem, they were all, be, they were all going out to him and they were all being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. 
That's why he called John, John the Baptist. He wasn't a Baptist in the sense of like a Baptist, the Baptist denomination in America today. He was a Baptist in the sense that he baptized people. And John's baptism that we see here in verse 5, verse 4 and 5, is similar and different to how we see and experience baptism today. So, uh, differences, differences between John's baptism and how we uh, understand and practice baptism today. First, baptism today is uh, administered by a church. It's an ordinance. It's a sacrament that belongs to the church. It was given to the, the church. And, and specifically, it's how, it's how the church welcomes someone into itself, right? You are now, we, we baptize someone. They're now a part of the church. They're, they're, and, and so, so um, baptism, when practiced rightly today, specifically baptism of believers, but baptism of believers is when, when a person makes a profession of faith, this is what I believe about Jesus, and then the church, the, the established people of God, affirm that person's profession of faith and say, we see evidence of regeneration in your life. We affirm you as a fellow believer along with us, and we want to welcome you into our number. That's kind of what baptism uh, does or is uh, today. And in the case of covenantal infant baptism, similar, it's, you know, it's, it's not, covenantal infant baptism is done not on the basis of the infant's profession of faith, because they're just born, but on the basis of the parent's profession of faith. The church is saying, we affirm you, the parents, as faithful believers, members in good standing of our number, and we commit with you to, to helping raise this child. And, and hopefully we're going to pray and hope that one day this child will make a profession of faith like you have, and then we will you know, welcome them into membership at, at that point. But that's baptism today done by a church. It's a sacrament that belongs to the church. John was just a guy in the Jordan River baptizing people. So there's a little bit of uh, difference there. But secondly, it's also what it represents or, or kind of the symbolism behind it. Uh, John's baptism was specifically having to do with repentance, uh, confessing sin, repenting for sin, and looking to God for forgiveness. All of that is very similar to Christian baptism today. But Christian baptism today, specifically when it's done by immersion, has more meaning. We see that in Romans 6. It, it's linked to uh, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. It says we were buried therefore with Christ by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So when a person in today is baptized by immersion, it's supposed to symbolize death, burial, resurrection, and it's supposed to remind us of our obligation and newfound power from the Holy Spirit to live a, a, a God, to walk in newness of life and to live a godly life. So there's a little bit uh, more that's being said or symbolized by, by Christian baptism than there was by, by John's. But they also have a lot of similarities, and it's worth pointing those out as well. First, John's baptism was public, right? You would come to John publicly. It wasn't like a secret thing that you did in your closet or, you know, it was just between you and God. It was a public uh, thing where you basically were going in front of people and saying, I am repenting of my sin. I'm doing it publicly. I want everyone to know that I'm doing it. I want everyone to hold me accountable to actually follow through on what I'm saying. Right? It's public and it's on the record. So is Christian baptism today. John's baptisms involved, like I said, the act of obedience and the confession of sin. So does baptism today. When a person is baptized, when a believer is baptized today, part of it is that they come and they, they acknowledge themselves as a sinner before the people of God. They say, I, I am a sinner. I don't like that I'm a sinner. I want to change. I don't want to sin anymore. I want to confess my sin and stop pretending like it's not there. I want to turn from my sin and stop doing it, and I want to put it to death. These are all things that John's baptism candidates said publicly, and they're all things that Christian baptism candidates today say publicly. And then finally, it was one other, one other uh, similarity. John's baptism was symbolic and not, like, magical, right? It didn't, like, there, it wasn't like it, it like, magically did something. It, it, was, it was symbolic of something that was already happening in the person's when a person came to John to get baptized, 
that baptism did not manufacture repentance in their heart that wasn't there before. That baptism was a symbol of the inward reality of repentance of sin that, they, that had already happened, right? Like a wedding ring, right? right? You, you know, the, putting a wedding ring on doesn't make you married, Right? What makes you married is, is the covenant, the commitment that you make in, you know, to your spouse in front of all these people. Taking your wedding ring off doesn't make you not married. It's just a symbol of the reality of what, of what marriage is. And so baptism's like that. It's a symbol. It's not like a magical thing that, that manufactures uh, repentance or salvation in a person's heart. It's a symbol of salvation. It's a symbol of things that have, of, of an inward reality that, that, uh, that will have already taken place. And so some similarities and some differences between John's baptism and how we understand and practice baptism uh, today. So, verse 1, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Verse 2, Jesus was anticipated by the prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, Verses 4 through 5, Jesus was preceded by John the Baptist. He was called, uh, John the Baptist called people to a baptism of repentance. Verse 6 is weird. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Like, why do we, why do we need to know John's fashion choices, strange as they were? Why do we need to know his dietary choices, strange as they were? Like, why did, why did Mark include this detail about John the Baptist? Well, to understand that, uh, we have to look just for a minute at the ministry of Elijah, which we're all well equipped to do, because we studied the books of First Kings and Second Kings uh, this this year. So, um, Elijah is a prophet from God. We see him uh, in First Kings. Uh, we, we, he goes through into the ministry, in, into the book of Second Kings. He's rebuking and confronting the kings of the time, Ahab and these other, these other, other guys. In Second Kings chapter one. Who remembers the story of 2 Kings chapter 1? There's a king of Israel named Ahaziah, and he uh, falls through the floor of the attic of his... He has a domestic... It, it, he falls and, like, breaks his leg or does something, and he's, he's, like, injured and he's sick, and he thinks he might die because of it. And the king sends servants to a prophet of an idol named Baal, and he says, go ask that prophet if I'm going to get, get better. And the servant leaves... And then shortly after he leaves, he comes right back. Like he, you know, forgot his keys or something. And the king says, hey, why have you returned? Why'd you come back so quickly? I told you to go to the prophet and told you to ask him if I'm going to get better. And the prophet, or, and the messenger says, well, we got stopped on the way. A man came to meet us and he said, go back to the king who sent you and say to him, is there no God in Israel? Why are you going to ask of Baal-Zabub, the god of Ekron, Therefore, because you did this, you shall surely not come down from the bed that you have gone up to, and you shall surely die. So the king's like, that doesn't sound like a good message. I don't know. I told you to go to this one guy, and you didn't get to him. You got stopped by this other guy who has a bad message, and so he's going to do some fact-finding. He says, what kind of man was it? What kind of man was it who came to you and told you these things? And the messenger says, he wore a garment of hair, and he had a belt of leather around his waist. Who was that? Elijah. And the king says, Newman, right? The king says, Elijah. I knew it was him. I, I, you didn't even have to say anything other than coat of garments, you know, a garment of animal hair and a leather belt. That's Elijah. I can't stand that guy. He's always, you know, saying bad things about me, right? And so when Mark says, well, hey, when, when, when uh, John the Baptist dons the camel's hair and the leather belt, he's, sin- he's saying, I am the, I'm the, I'm Elijah 2.0. Everything Elijah did, I'm doing. My ministry is like his. My ministry is the continuation of and the fulfillment of his ministry. And when Mark puts that detail here, he's trying to get us to say, hey, take note of Elijah and who he is, because that is, that is a picture of, that is a paradigm of John the Baptist and who he is, right? John the Baptist, right, like, uh, Elijah called people to repentance, so does John the Baptist. Elijah speaks truth to power, so does John the Baptist. Kings tried to kill Elijah. Kings tried to, well they did, kings tried to and did kill John the Baptist. 
So, so Elijah, in a lot of ways, was seen as the epitome of the Old Testament prophetic office. Everything that the prophetic office was, did and was designed to do, Elijah was, was kind of that, that guy. And John the Baptist was seen as the culmination, right? Like he is the final Old Testament prophet, right? He is Elijah 2.0, the last person to operate in that role. And here, and what's also interesting is that Elijah's ministry gave way to a successor named Elisha, right? So Elijah spends his life in ministry proclaiming, calling people to repentance, right? Uh, pointing out their sin and saying, you have to repent. And then he hands his ministry over to his successor, Elisha. And what does Elisha do? He performs miracles. He heals the sick. He takes huge crowds and feeds them with a few loaves of bread. He raises people from the dead. Elisha serves as a predecessor, as as a, a picture or a reflection of the ministry of Jesus. John the Baptist is something of an Elijah 2.0, and Jesus himself is something of an Elisha 2.0. And you can go back even further to Moses and Joshua. Moses leads the people out of Egypt. He leads them through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, where they receive the law of God. He leads them through the wilderness for decades, but Moses never actually goes into the promised land. Right? He dies before they go in, and his ministry is handed over to his successor, Joshua, who, again, has the same name as Jesus. Joshua, Yeshua, right? same name, God, salvation has come from God. And so, so Moses leads people to Sinai and declares the law of God to the people of God that's designed to break their hearts and bring about repentance and, and brokenness. And then Joshua leads people into the promised land, into the Sabbath rest of God. Moses' life was the embodiment of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. And Joshua's life and ministry was the embodiment of grace and peace and provision. Moses is the forerunner who prepares the way. Joshua is the successor who brings life and grace and salvation. Elijah is the forerunner who prepares the way, and Elisha is the successor who brings healing and provision and resurrection. Old covenant, new covenant, forerunner, successor. Moses, Joshua, Elijah, Elisha, John the Baptist, Jesus. So Mark's not just telling us what John the Baptist wore. He's, he's making it clear that, that, G, that John the Baptist is the, the next the next character in a string of characters where you've got a forerunner and a successor, the former of whom is designed to bring repentance and brokenness, and the latter of whom is designed to bring grace and restoration and healing and life and salvation for the people of of God. One tells them that they need a Savior, and one saves them. John the Baptist tells the people that they need a Savior, and then Jesus comes and saves them and brings them home. And then verse 7, and he preached saying, after he comes, he, or after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Gotta love John the Baptist, right? He is somehow both fearless and selfless at the same time, right? Like any good preacher, he, he calls people to repentance and then he points people to the Savior. He points away from himself and to the, the, the Savior. Mark, right, the, Mark intentionally starts his gospel by thrusting John the Baptist into the foreground and yet, the part of the book about John the Baptist is bookended by verse 1 on the one hand and verse 7 and 8 on the other hand. It's bookended by verses that aren't about John, right? It's like the passage is shouting that the one in the foreground has come not just to 
prepare the way, but then to give way, to get out of the way, and to cede his ground to Jesus the King. And John is thrilled about this, right? John, John is happy to step out of the spotlight, out of the foreground, and make way for Jesus. John is like a, a candle in the dark hours of the morning that's about to give way to the rising sun. And in John 3, verse 30, he says, I must decrease and Jesus must increase. Right? John doesn't want to take glory away from Je- John is happy to fulfill the role that Jesus has called him to and then step out of the way and make room and make space for Jesus and for his, for his ministry. John the Baptist was sent to prepare people for Christ's first coming by preaching repentance to them. And we would do well this Advent season, at all times really, but specifically at this Advent season, to practice repentance in our own lives as we wait for Christ's second coming. which is what we do when we celebrate communion. We remember the death of the Lord Jesus Christ together. We wait together for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We repent of our sins together. We trust in Jesus together as we eat and drink. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're a Christian, if you're a member of the the body of Christ... We invite you to take communion with us. Music, after I pray, the music will start. You can come forward down the middle, receive the elements. They're gluten-free and alcohol-free. And then just take a moment in your seat to, to confess your sin, to receive the grace that Jesus freely offers, remember, celebrate, and eat and drink. If you're not a Christian, we'd ask you not to take communion because the scriptures teach against it. Instead of taking communion, we would invite you to take Christ to trust in him, to look to him, and to hold fast to him, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm going to pray and then we'll celebrate communion together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to inaugurate the new covenant We thank you for the truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We thank you for what Jesus did for us, for his active obedience, for his death on the cross, and for how we can be saved through Christ's death and resurrection. Lord, we look to you and acknowledge that you are our only hope. Please save us and keep us just like you promised that you would. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.